Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here for New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. I am here today with a distinguished, distinguished professor of history, Dorothy Brown, distinguished professor of history at Georgetown University, Allison Games. She recently published Inventing the English Massacre, Amboina in History and Memory, published earlier this year by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Games. Thank you. So let's just dive right into it. What were the causes of deception, captivity, and cohabitation among traders in the Dutch and English East India companies, as well as the Orangaya, in the early 17th century nutmeg and clove islands of the East Indies? I thought this could set up your your book here. Sure. Um, That's a big question. And it's a big question I engaged at the very beginning of my book, because my book looks at this incident that I always very awkwardly describe as the episode that became known as the Amboina Massacre. And the incident was a conspiracy trial that took place in what's modern now modern-day Indonesia, the island of Ambon. It was a place where the English and Dutch East India companies competed over the clove trade. And in 1623, 10 English merchants, nine or 10 Japanese soldiers, and a man who was in charge of the Dutch company's slaves at Amboina, as the English and Dutch called the island, were executed because they'd been accused of plotting to take over the trading post and kill the Dutch. So what I try to do in this book is make sense of how that weird constellation of characters, the English, the Japanese, this slave overseer, all ended up as alleged plotters and how they were executed. And to make sense of that, I looked at the first 20 years of English and Dutch activity in the Indian Ocean and in the region of the Spice Islands and around in that area um, to understand how these two nations or the subjects of these two nations, which were in alliance for much of, much of this period, ended up fighting and killing each other and then embroiled in this conspiracy trial. So the English and the Dutch East India companies were established in the early 17th century and the traders uh, were newcomers to the region. The Portuguese had been a dominant European power, but of course, Europeans were latecomers compared to all the robust trade that already existed in the region. So the Dutch and the English appeared as these newcomers, as these strangers, as people who had to prove that they had value to the existing traders and trade alliances of the region. The English and Dutch sort of had to um, define who they were and what what they could bring as trading partners. So they first showed up in some of the major trading entrepots of the region, like Banton, which was an enormous city, uh, densely populated. Um, 
And there they had to show that they were useful traders, but they really couldn't achieve any kind of um, commercial or political or military power. The situation was different when the two trading companies reached what Europeans called the Spice Islands, places where especially nutmeg and cloves were produced, nutmeg in the Banda Islands and cloves in Ambon and other islands in that area. Um, Europeans loved these spices, not just for the value they had as food and as a valuable prestige good, but especially because they were such useful medicines in the um, medical system that Europeans adhere to in which your body had to be kept in balance. And these uh, spices were believed to be useful in helping to restore that balance. So for example, um, some physicians in England believed that nutmeg could cure a plague. Um, cloves could cure the cold or a headache. Um, they could help digestion. So there was all kinds of value to these spices. And Europeans competed vehemently to get access to them and then also to control the market so it wasn't glutted in Europe. So the English and Dutch appeared in this context in pursuit of this desirable commodity, bringing with them the great weight of a shared intertwined history in Europe. So there are these two different pieces of making sense of how relationships developed and deteriorated in this region and ended up with English and Japanese heads being put on pikes on Ambon Island. The And none of it makes any sense if you can't understand how the English and Dutch uh, interacted with each other in Europe, where they, as I said, had been allies when the Dutch engaged in a protracted revolt against the Spanish to secure their independence. And Queen Elizabeth had supported that revolt and English soldiers were an important part of those forces against the Spanish. So the English had this view of themselves as the people who had enabled the Dutch to achieve their independence. They believed that the Dutch should be grateful to them in Europe, on the other side of the world, for English assistance. So that dynamic was a, is important to understand why the English acted as they did and why the Dutch might have responded as they did. So there the two East India companies were competing in the Spice Islands. And they competed in a context where nutmeg and cloves were produced, where there was no one centralized power. There were these men called Orankaya, the word meant rich men, who were... Um, locally important officials who negotiated trade contracts. But these men negotiated multiple trade contracts. They might have one contract with the Dutch and another contract with the English. So both the English and the Dutch traders felt they couldn't secure any kind of um, permanent monopoly over the trade. The result was a lot of really kind of um, sneaky competition, um, the traders tried to humiliate each other. They tried, They told lies about their opponents so that they would be perceived as being less useful and valuable to indigenous traders. Uh, they launched sneaky attacks on each other. They tried to humiliate each other. There's an account by the English that the Dutch seized an English flag and then used the scraps of the flag as toilet paper. So lots of very kind of theatrical ways to degrade their rivals. But by the middle of the 1610s, around starting in 1615, 1616, the two trading companies were actually in open 
war and killing each other, which of course was um, very expensive for the companies and deadly for the men involved and profoundly disruptive for indigenous people who got ensnared in these conflicts. So the result of this violence in the East Indies was that on the other side of the world, in Europe, the men who ran the two East India companies and diplomats, the Prince of Orange, King James, they all pushed for a treaty to bring peace to the region. And in 1619 in Europe, the two trading companies were forced to agree to this treaty. A year later, the traders in the East Indies, still killing each other, got news of this treaty. Um, And we're told that they had to stop fighting, of course, but also live in peace and work as partners. More troubling for the English was that they were supposed to be the junior partner in the treaty. The Dutch would contribute two-thirds of the expenses and get two-thirds of the the profit, and the English would contribute one-third and get one-third of the profit. But if ever there were a tied vote as uh, the companies determined how administration should work in the region, the Dutch would get what the English called a double vote. So the English could be outvoted by the Dutch. This arrangement completely subverted the English view of themselves as the people who would save the Dutch Republic. So it graded their sense of honor and, uh, of course, infuriated both the English and the Dutch that they were compelled to be living in peace after having been in a state of war. So as part of the treaty agreement, the English and the Dutch were supposed to share trading privileges and access to the spices at all the different spice islands. And so on the island of Amboina, the English who had left the island because of this conflict a couple of years earlier returned. They returned to the Clove Island and were supposed to cooperate with the Dutch traders there. The problem was, of course, the traders didn't trust each other. And there were also still a lot of local rulers, these Arankaya, some of whom had reached a peaceful trade agreement with the Dutch, some through coercion, but some of whom had not yet accepted this idea that the Dutch were actually in control there. And the Dutch worried that the English might ally themselves with these local rulers. So to keep that from happening, the English and Dutch in Amboina made what is a pretty unusual decision. I haven't seen other instances like it. They decided that the best way to secure peace and to keep the men living peacefully together so that the trade could flourish was to require the English and the Dutch traders to live in the same houses. So they set up the system of cohabitation in which all the men would actually live together, sharing their houses and keeping an eye on each other all to further harmony. Of course, it didn't work. Instead, the English believed that they were constantly being insulted and demeaned by the Dutch. You know, they complained, for example, about where they were seated at the dinner table. Was it a place of low status? Were servants seated ahead of them? They complained constantly about the charges. They believed that the Dutch were running up expenses and cheating them. So they're, instead of fostering harmony, this solution of cohabitation just enhanced the volatility and acrimony of their relations. And all of that tension was part of the climate 
that culminated in the incident that I try to make sense of in my book, this, this incident that became known as the Amboina Massacre. Please describe Fort Victoria and recount the chain of events that precipitated Governor Hermann von Spoltz's 1623 rounding up and imprisonment of alleged fire plotters in Amboina, a close uh, clove site, including multifarious descriptions of torture. You know, you can touch on witness testimony, those confessions by Japanese soldiers, Dutch traders, um, and then prisoner professions of innocence, uh, however you want to respond. The conspiracy trial that developed on Amboina came not only out of the context I just talked about, all that tension and acrimony, all those personal um, hostilities and disputes, um, but also in the context of Dutch East India Company ambitions in the region. So both that regional context and the local context came together to produce this this conspiracy trial. The, The English were quite weak in the East Indies, but the Dutch were in a period of very aggressive bellicose expansion. In 1621, there was a big Dutch invasion of the Banda Islands. That's the place where nutmeg was cultivated. And the population there was almost entirely murdered or displaced by the Dutch. But one consequence of this violent demeanor was that the Dutch saw conspiracies everywhere. They believed there was a big conspiracy at Banda, when over 100 people were tortured and executed, there were two conspiracies that were rumored in Batavia, which was the center of Dutch and English administrative activities in the region. And the Dutch believed that the English might be plotting two. And in at least one of those other conspiracies, they tried to get people to incriminate the English. I mentioned this because the, the Dutch governor general, who was the person in charge of all of the Dutch trading posts in the region, wrote to all of the local officials saying, be on the lookout for the English. Don't trust them. They're up to no good. An Englishman would lie about anything, including an Englishman would look at the sun shining at high noon and deny it was shining. So the governor of Amboina, a man named Herman Van Spilt, took these warnings to heart and he wrote back saying he would be vigilant. He would be ready to move at the very first sign of any trouble. So he was clearly a man on edge and suspicious of any threat to his rule. So there's that regional context of Dutch suspicion and then Van Spolt's uh, sensitivity to anything that might undermine his rule. So that's the important context. And then in February of 1623, a Japanese soldier who worked in the main town and was working at the fort, Fort Victoria, the big edifice on the harbor at Ambon, was patrolling the fort. And he asked some questions. He asked questions about when the guard would change and who, how many people would be there. He was one of maybe 30 Japanese soldiers who was based um, with the Dutch at Ambon. And he was one of maybe 300 Japanese soldiers altogether who were employed by the Dutch. So this was an important contingent for the Dutch East India Company. Uh, The Dutch had recruited these men um, starting in the 1610s from Japan. Uh, The Dutch believed these soldiers were fiercer than European soldiers, and Europeans also tended to die at high rates on their way to the Indian Ocean and once they were there. So the Dutch were regarded as 
tougher, stronger, fiercer. They became a key linchpin of these Dutch ambitions during this period of expansion. So this Japanese soldier at Amboina was just one of maybe 30 who was stationed there at the time. But his questions raised concerns from the suspicious and touchy Dutch. And their concerns might have been heightened because there was somebody who was already in prison who suggested the Dutch had something to worry about. This was the man who was the overseer of the slaves of the Dutch company, and he had been imprisoned for resisting Dutch authority. So when the Japanese soldier asked these questions, maybe it suggested to the governor that there really were some things to be worried about. So even though the Japanese soldier said he had just asked his questions because he was curious, the Dutch governor didn't believe a word of it um, and interrogated him and interrogated him with torture to compel a confession. He was tortured, as were the English, with both water and with fire. We would describe that water torture as being like what we know of as waterboarding. Uh, the, The men were fastened to a door frame, and then a cloth was put over their faces, and then water was poured in. So, of course, they felt as if they were drowning. And then they were also tortured with fire, Uh, with um, lances, with flames at the end, or with candles under their armpits and under their feet and against their body. So this Japanese soldier confessed to a plot. Then he was asked if the English were also involved, and he said, yes, they were. So the other Japanese soldiers in the town were rounded up because the plot he confessed to was one of the Japanese soldiers joining forces with the English to take over the trading post The English were rounded up from the five different trading posts they occupied on and near Amboina. They were tortured or threatened with torture, and they confessed to this plot. According to the confession, the men had gathered on New Year's Day at the main English trading house, and they had taken an oath to take over the trading post and kill all the Dutch and then have control over the clove trade in consort with the Japanese. This torture was obviously a really important part of the process, but also important for us to understand the story that was produced. The point of torture in Dutch jurisprudence, which was consistent with the continental European inquisitorial system, was to produce the confessions which would reveal the truth about a crime. But torture could only stop when the interrogators got the story that they found plausible. So what we have in these surviving records is the plot that the Dutch governor and the council he gathered to assist him in hearing this matter believed to be likely. So there were some things that people confessed to that the governor didn't believe and that part of the narrative was discarded. So there may have been a plot, there may have been an entirely different plot, or there may have been no plot. It's all we know is what was produced by torture. English historians for centuries completely dismissed this whole thing out of hand, saying it was absolutely impossible uh, that the English would have done this. And they based that analysis on reading the English accounts of what had happened. But there is actually evidence in other sources that suggested it wasn't totally unimaginable that the English might have been plotting in some way. Uh, a couple of years earlier, the, go- the English governor of Amboina 
had sent a, a map to his superiors showing all the details of the castle right after the English returned to Amboina after the 1619 treaty. An Englishman suggested that all the English should join forces and fight against the Dutch. So there were certainly reasons uh, for suspicion, but it doesn't mean that this particular plot happened. And the problem for the Dutch is they kept very poor records of the trial. They produced a very sparse account. It only had the confessions and not the interrogations. And in the system of justice, questions would be asked and people would answer them. And you needed the questions and the answers to see the full trial. Perhaps the biggest mistake the Dutch made was to pardon and acquit some of the English. So eight English people were not executed and they generated their own account. And in these accounts the English made, they, and in some surviving documents, there's a lot of evidence that the English claimed to be innocent. Some of the men who were going to be executed managed to get ink and paper from their Dutch friends. Remember, some these men had lived with Dutch housemates. And while there was a lot of tension in that relationship, there were also friendships. So some people who were exonerated were exonerated because their housemate said, he wasn't at that meeting. He was home with me celebrating the new year. So some of them managed to get various kinds of writing materials from the Dutch, and they wrote down statements of their innocence. So the English head merchant got a copy of the Bible, and he wrote an account of his innocence in the Bible, and then he tried to glue the leaves together so nobody could see those pages, although it was later discovered and the uh, Dutch governor, Van Spilt, confiscated the Bible. He did write an account of innocence on a bill of sale that did survive, some other men wrote a collective account of their innocence in an account book, you know, just the kind of document a merchant would have handy. But one of the most powerful accounts of innocence is one that was written by a man named Samuel Coulson. He had, his, he had a copy of the East India Company's Book of Psalms. And in the blank pages of that Book of Psalms, it's a, it's a very big book, hundreds of pages, a lot of blank leaves. And he wrote an account interspersed through this book. He explained what had happened, that he was tortured with the Japanese, and he confessed uh, that which he knew to be false, or some language like that. And these documents survived. So this, this book of Psalms, you can actually see to this day in the National Archives in The Hague, and it's pretty incredible to look at it. Um, of course, all of these materials could have been forgeries, and that's something the English and Dutch debated at the time. You know, But we do have at least this one surviving material. In the English accounts, the English claim they kept professing their innocence. And one key moment of that story of innocence took place at the execution ground itself, where the same Englishman who wrote that account in the psalm book, Samuel Coulson, he said a psalm, and then he delivered a prayer that he had written himself. And in the prayer, he said that the English were innocent of the crime. And he read the, the prayer off a piece of paper. And then there was a lot of consternation in later records about what had happened to that piece of paper. And no one knew, but it was that kind of elusive scrap of paper that in some ways I think captures the essence of what really happened at the trial. You know, Everything is just like this piece of paper that went, went missing. There's no really firm, secure knowledge of what transpired. Um, but ultimately, 
you know, despite all of these professions of innocence, 10 English merchants, nine or 10 Japanese soldiers, and then this man who was the overseer of the slaves were all beheaded as conspirators against the Dutch. Now, this is a more specific question. Why do you believe that Van Spoltz marched the prisoners through the town in Amboina? And how did the raising of four heads on stakes conform to spectacles of punishment in Europe as well as island headhunting? I love the story of Van Spoltz marching or not marching the prisoners through the town. So when I looked at all the trial records and I tried to line all of these depositions that I read, there are about 50 depositions I looked at next to each other, and I tried to create a timeline. And I focused especially on all of those moments that were subjects of dispute, very specific subjects of dispute between the English and the Dutch later in Europe. And some of these sources of disagreement would seem minor, but in fact, they got at issues that the two companies were very sensitive and touchy about. And one of them was a story that the English survivors told that all of the men who were condemned, English, Japanese, and then the captain of the slaves, overseer of the slaves, the English called him the captain as well, that they were all gathered together at the castle at Fort Victoria, marched through the castle gate, and then escorted by these troops of Dutch citizens and sailors and soldiers, marched all the way around the town before ending up at the execution ground and being beheaded. The Dutch said that was preposterous. That never happened. The men walked directly to the execution ground, which was just in the the words that all of them used, the same phrase in all their depositions, just a stone's throw beyond the gate. And that there was none of this, not this tour through the town. So we'll never know for sure, although there is one deposition that deviated from that standard Dutch account and said um, the men stopped at a church, which suggests that there was some kind of tour going on. But it seems to me that it would simply not have been possible for the governor to resist this incredible opportunity to make this public display of what he had accomplished. He had found a plot so much more dangerous than the plots his colleagues had found on other islands. Like the plot on Banda, it was a huge plot. As I said, over 100 people were tortured and executed. That was a really big deal. But the plot that Van Spolt believed he had found involved the English. It involved the Japanese soldiers. It was an incredible testimony to his authority as a governor that he managed to reveal this plot. So I just find it hard to believe that he wouldn't have wanted to parade his authority and to warn everybody in town about the ability of the Dutch to quell any kind of rivalry and also to signal to to the people of Amboina that there was no point in trying to ally themselves with the English because it would fail. And I think that public display that may or may not have happened through the procession is how we can make sense of what Van Spolt did after the execution, which was to put four heads on pikes, the heads of three of the Japanese conspirators, and then one English head. I think that ratio is useful to think about, one Englishman, three of the Japanese soldiers. From the Dutch perspective, the Japanese may have been the greater threat. And in fact, after this episode, the Dutch stopped recruiting Japanese soldiers. The English turned the story into an English and Dutch story. But when you look at the conspiracy itself, 
obviously there was a much bigger cast of characters involved and and some of those people may have been a source of greater concern. Those heads, I think, carried many different meanings. I mean, Europeans routinely put heads on display and other body parts as well after executions to try to warn people about the consequences of their bad behavior. But heads had meanings on Amboina as well because it was a place inhabited by headhunters where the heads of enemies had sacred and ceremonial significance. So I think when Van Spolt ordered those heads to be put on display, there would have been different meanings to multiple observers. Van Spolt was clearly worried about local resistance as well, and he traveled regularly around Amboina to try to display Dutch authority to people in the region. So I think he was also trying to send a clear signal to frighten local people into submission. Those four heads point to that local regional context of the conspiracy in which the Dutch were worried about the English, but they had concerns well beyond just English plotters. So let's get to inventing the English massacre. How did the English meaning of massacre um, with its associations to uh, treachery and innocence, emerge from international contexts, especially English colonial endeavors in the Americas. One of the things I learned when I started working on this episode was that the word massacre was actually a relatively new word in the English language when it happened. So it's a French word originally, and it was a word that described a butcher's block, a massacre. But during the French wars of religion in the 16th century, the word came to be used to describe the murders of Protestants. And then it came into the English language through these English translations of these French pamphlets about the wars of religion and the massacres of Protestants. But it had a pretty broad meaning. It it meant a cruel murder. So it could describe events that we today might call massacres, the large-scale murders of civilians, or it could describe the murder of an individual. So it had very broad meaning. The English in the East Indies called the incident a massacre right away. They wrote their employers about the massacre of the traitors, and they called the Dutch butchers and cannibals. So those were words that invoked the words origin in a butcher's block. Then the English in England used that word too. In part, I think, of course, they were inspired by what their own employees had said in their letters. And when the um, the men who were pardoned got back to England, they described what they had been through and they all called it a massacre. But I think there's also another useful context, which was an event that took place in the English colony of Virginia in 1622. In 1622, an Indian leader named Canal and his soldiers killed about one third of the English inhabitants there. The English wrote about this episode in ways similar to how the French wrote about Protestants killed during sectarian conflicts. They wrote about innocent victims, people just going about their day, having their breakfast, killed cruelly, suddenly, by people that they knew. And the English Virginia Company used the word massacre to describe this event, that there was a pamphlet about the massacre in Virginia and uh, other works as well. So just a year before the English learned about this incident in Amboina, there was news about this other event 
called a massacre. So I think that might have been a useful context as well, that this word, which was also connected with the experiences of the English overseas, was circulating commonly. It's In some ways, it's tricky for historians to write about these massacres because there's so many things that happen that we as historians call massacres. But the point I try to make in my book is that those events were not called massacres at the time by the English. So I mentioned earlier this incident when the Dutch invaded the Banda Islands and killed maybe as many as 15,000 people. It, a huge number of deaths. And the English described that as violent and bloody, cruel, but they didn't use the word massacre. So it's clear that the, a massacre applied to specific types of killings, uh, certainly ones, as far as the English were concerned, in which they were the victims. What the English East India Company did was to create a new kind of secular massacre through Amboina, the cruel killing of innocent people by a treacherous and ungrateful enemy. I think one of the key things for the English in their in how they used the word massacre was that it was an event that was produced by familiarity and intimacy, not strangers. And all those features became key elements of, of how the English came to write about events that they called massacres, that they were you know, familiarity, intimacy, cruelty, treachery, betrayal. In this instance, it was a ju- judicial execution. Later events called massacres tended to be mass slaughters of people, but the meanings attached to the episodes were the same. Can you explicate Hollandophobia in 1620s London and compare the three versions of the 1624 True Elation, the 1624 Habsburg-sponsored broadside with images, the uh, EIC version is two woodcuts, as well as that uh, broadside ballad? You can do one or all. Okay. (laughs) I'll, I'll dip into that. So when people think about English foreign relations, if if they think about English foreign relations in the 1620s, they usually think, quite understandably, about English animosity toward the Spanish, which was especially strong in that decade, especially in the wake of a humiliating episode called the Spanish Match, which was an attempt by James I to marry his son, who would would become Charles I, off to the Spanish Infanta. And it it failed. So there were very intense feelings against the Spanish. But, and, and, and also um, during those years, the English crown, first James and then especially Charles, were ardent supporters of the Dutch. There were treaties the English signed with the Dutch in 1624 and 1625. So there's this important context of intense anti Spanish feelings and these formal diplomatic accords with the Dutch. But there was also clearly a strand of hostility toward the Dutch or Hollandophobia, as I think about it. Although it was weak and it wouldn't achieve full form until war broke out between England and the United Provinces in 1652. And Amboina was a key part of that story of how these feelings against the Dutch were fostered and then sustained. The English East India Company played a key role in creating this attitude and also in creating the Amboina episode as a massacre. 
mean, as I, I said, that a massacre was a cruel murder. And in that way, of course, the English would have thought what happened at Amboina was a massacre. It was a cruel murder. But the English East India Company did something a bit more complex in how they talked and wrote about this incident. So the key challenge they faced when they wanted to bring publicity to what had happened in order to try to get restitution from the Dutch East India Company for their financial losses at Amboina was this context of English and Dutch alliance. The East in English East India Company could not write openly about hostility toward the Dutch. They could not be openly critical of the Dutch because they were an English ally. So they had to censor themselves. They wrote a three-part pamphlet. And in this pamphlet, they never described the episode as a massacre. This pamphlet consisted of the Dutch account of what had happened, which was called the True Declaration. And then there was the English account, had a long title, A True Relation of the Unjust, Cruel, and Barbarous Proceedings Against the English at Amboina. It goes on and on. But the true relation is the key part, and sort of the shorthand, how I refer to it. And then there was a third piece of this pamphlet in which the English responded to what they saw as the errors in the Dutch account. The English East India Company also did a Dutch language translation and shipped copies to the United Provinces. So the account circulated in English and Dutch in England and in the Netherlands. But as I said, they didn't call the incident a massacre. Instead, the English East India Company did that persuasive work through woodcuts. They commissioned two woodcuts, both showing the same key themes. There was one woodcut produced for the English language version, and then a different woodcut produced for the Dutch language version. So I will attempt to describe the key features of these visual sources. So in this English language woodcut, it's actually a three-part scene. It tells a story. It's a narrative. The top two-thirds of the woodcut show a man tied to a doorframe, spread-eagled in, in the shape of an X. He's flanked by two men, two European men, one of whom is pouring water over his face, so he's experiencing the water torture, and the other man on his right has a lance with a flame at the end of it, and he's holding it against the man's armpit. So the top scene is this man being tortured, and the man holding the lance against the bare chest of the English traitor being tortured, I think conjures up the image of Christ on the cross with the soldier who put a lance in his side. Then the bottom third of the image shows two scenes. The bottom left, we see a man who is sitting down on the ground. He looks frazzled. There seems to be water dripping off his face. He just has a piece of cloth wrapped around him. So he looks like somebody who's just been tortured and is recovering. And then the scene at the bottom right is a very dignified, kneeling man, his hands bound, but in prayer, about to be beheaded by a European swordsman. So there's a whole story there in that scene. And then the Dutch language version just focused on the torture aspect and showed this similar picture of a man tied in the shape of an X to a door frame. In the Dutch version, 
he is surrounded by six men on his sides torturing him, and then at his feet, two men holding candles to scorch his souls. And then there are also figures um, who look like they're in a dungeon or a cellar peering out from a grate. So there are these two powerful images. And these images made the argument for the English East India Company that this event was a massacre. And the way to make sense of how the images made that argument is to think about popular images of the deaths of martyrs at the time. There was a you know, a well-known book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, that English Protestants knew well that showed numerous deaths of martyrs. The, these particular images showing this, these traitors tied to a door frame in the shape of an X would have evoked the image of St. Andrew, who was crucified in that shape. He, and he is called the St. Andrew's cross. It's the saltire. It's that X-shaped cross. So anyone looking at these images, a Protestant at the time, English or Dutch, would have understood that that was like the image of St. Andrew, that these men were martyrs. So people who saw these images were supposed to think of the traitors as martyrs and to think of the episode as a massacre because massacres, the religious massacres in France, produced martyrs. This was a not quite like that. It was a secular massacre, but it also produced martyrs. And the pamphlets the English company wrote, which again, as I said, didn't use the word massacre, introduced other aspects of events associated with massacres, like relics. The pamphlets talked about the materials I, t- I mentioned earlier, those attestations of innocence, Samuel Colson's Book of Psalms, these little scraps of paper. The, the, that's the Amboina massacre's version of relics. And then there were also signs of miracles, signs of divine providence that accompanied the event. So after the executions, there were big storms that destroyed Dutch ships. There was a sickness that was not seasonal. And there was a man who was a Scot who worked for the Dutch East India Company who allegedly went to visit the gravesite of the English in Amboina. And then he, he went mad. He went crazy, overcome with guilt for what had happened to the English there. Those were all indications of the signs of divine providence after the episode. So these illustrations in the pamphlets created a massacre without using the word. And of course, one really important aspect of these illustrations and a key feature of this particular incident as a massacre was that there was no indication that any non-Europeans were involved. The pamphlets talked about the Japanese men and the slave overseer, but the illustrations only depicted Europeans. The Japanese were completely inconsequential to the story. So what the English East India Company did was it took this global event, a conspiracy on the other side of the world with a big cast of characters that was produced by that specific regional context, and it turned it into a European affair, an event that happened between people who who knew each other well, and in this case, the ungrateful Dutch punishing the English who had rescued them from the Spanish. All of these pieces together made the episode a massacre. And I think one of the key elements I, I learned to look out for was the presence or the absence 
of the Japanese in the stories of the event over the centuries because their absence usually signaled that an author was thinking about the event as a massacre. So those were the key pamphlets and illustrations produced in England. But you, you would ask me to talk a bit about um, one of the other pamphlets. So there was a third version produced by the Habsburgs at the Jesuit press in St. Omer in the Spanish Netherlands. And the Habsburgs wanted to use the Amboina story to drive a wedge between the English and the Dutch and sever their alliance because the alliance was targeted against the Habsburgs. As I said, the East India Company censored itself. They couldn't attack the Dutch, but the Habsburgs, you know, of course they were, they could say whatever they wanted. So the Habsburg version of the true relation was very similar to the English version, but there were a couple of key differences that showed how much more liberated the Spanish could be. So for example, in this version produced by the Jesuit press on the European continent, it omitted a paragraph that talked about the Japanese and it had a special um, letter added to it, to, uh, an introductory letter that openly urged the English to sever their connections with the Dutch. The Habsburgs also produced a broadside that in English, but it was produced in, well, Pressburg, which is modern Bratislava, um, that I think was targeted to the English soldiers who were fighting alongside the Dutch, because as I said, it was in English. And it said to, to these soldiers, people think you are crazy for fighting for the Dutch because of what they did to you at Amboina. So there were very explicit efforts in on the European continent by those who opposed the English and the Dutch to use the incident to sever that alliance. And I think it, that helps give us, give, give us a sense of how careful the English and Dutch East India companies had to be when they talked about the episode because they couldn't criticize their trade rivals openly. Immediately after the incident in Buffy and later in Europe, especially during the uh, hearings and trials at the uh, 1629 to 1631 Hague, how did pardoned and exonerated individuals transform into surviving witnesses? And what were changes and continuities in Batvia political and trade relations? So, of course, this incident had repercussions locally and, as I've just been suggesting, in Europe, in the East Indies the two trading companies were still officially bound by that 1619 treaty, although the English company thought the execution of its traders at Amboina gave it an excuse for breaking the deal. So I've looked through these records for how the two companies, both of which had their headquarters in Batavia, uh, dealt with each other. Um, in the aftermath of this, each company firmly believed that in their version of the plot, each company firmly believed that the other company was plotting against it. So there was a lot of acrimony um, complicated by instructions the traders received from their employers in Europe who were horrified to hear of this catastrophic breakdown of relations in Amboina and wrote their employees in the East Indies saying, get along with each other. The English decided they, they couldn't live with the Dutch, so they um, they tried to establish a new 
trading center for themselves. They moved from Batavia to a nearby island in the Straits of Sunda, but it was a disaster and they had to be rescued by the Dutch. And then finally, the English actually moved from Batavia to Banton and separated themselves and their trade flourished. Later historians had argued that Amboina destroyed English trade in the area, but in fact, that wasn't the case. And so the impact in the region where it happened was really quite mild and there was, you know, there was no resolution. Um, no, and also no restitution. And that was kind of the situation in England and the United Provinces too, at least in this, this first, like the first, you know, um, nine years after it happened. The East India Company wanted restitution for its losses. The English believed that the Dutch had insulted James I in their actions. The English wanted the Dutch to apologize and to acknowledge their error. The two treaties excuse me, the two nations were in alliance, as I have said. And so first James I and then Charles I allowed the Dutch states general, which is the legislative body for the United Provinces, to adjudicate the issue. But years passed with no resolution. But meanwhile, this key set of characters emerged. I call these men the survivors and the witnesses. So these were some of the eight Englishmen who were either acquitted or pardoned. Seven of them went back to England. Six of them stayed in London in the service of the English East India Company. Some of them had originally been condemned to death and then pardoned. Some of them had been tortured and all had been afraid of being tortured. Some of them had confessed even though they weren't even present for the alleged meeting. Some of them accused other people who were then tortured because of their accusations. So I think some of them suffered from what we would today think of as survivor's guilt. One of the men had only survived because the Dutch required him to draw lots with two other men. So these three men were told to draw lots. One of them would live. This guy won the draw. So that's why he survived. These men were very enterprising figures on the way, as the men were, sailed away from Amboina to Batavia, one of them managed to send a letter en route, and it was, and that letter got to Batavia before the ship carrying the men did. It provided the very first account. So the English heard about this incident before the Dutch, and then they stormed off to the Dutch headquarters, you know, in a state um, to say, "Here's what we've heard. You know, what has happened." But in that same way, these men told their story in England. Their accounts formed the basis of the English East India Company's pamphlets. They became celebrities in London. And the funny thing is they didn't have really great reputations in the East Indies. I've looked at letters about these men um, before the Amboina incident and then in the wake of it, and most of them didn't have good references. I mean, one was described as a cheat. You couldn't trust them. They were lazy but they really rehabilitated themselves when they got to England. Two of them even went to meet the king. They spoke on behalf of the dead. They testified about the property they had owned. They told the company even the last words of the dead. And they stayed in England to be available to serve as witnesses to respond to Dutch allegations because this incident produced reams of depositions as not just the two companies, but the governments thought about 
how to deal with this episode. The English published their account in 1624, or by November of 1624, and the Dutch government read that account and then interrogated their own, or the employees of the Dutch East India Company to respond to the accusations the English had made. So depositions started to be taken in the East Indies. These men were recalled to, to the Netherlands, so they were taken in The Hague as well. Um, and the witnesses needed to be on hand in case the Dutch disputed aspects. So for example, one of the witnesses said he had been tortured. And then a Dutch East India Company employee returned to the Netherlands, that same fleet that had brought the English back. And he said, no, he wasn't tortured. So then the man had to be available to go to talk to the king and tell him he had been tortured. So these men basically put their lives on hold, but also I think redefined the meaning of their lives. They became professional witnesses with their bodies and with their stories. A couple of them were hired to go and inspect any Dutch ship that sailed. So the, the, the king allowed the English East India Company to seize Dutch ships as part of this, this effort to push for restitution and damages. And so these two of these English men who had survived the trial went off to English ports to look on these ships to see if they could find anybody who had been a judge um, at the trial in The Hague. And you know, once they did, they found three people. Two of them escaped. Um, a third actually stuck around. Um, and then as part of their work as witnesses, the Dutch government wanted these Englishmen to go to The Hague and testify there in front of the States General, which, as I said, was adjudicating the affair. For a few years, everyone debated about whether or not the men should go. And four of them finally did. So four of these English witnesses went, along with a fifth man, who was a man who had actually worked for the Dutch East India Company, but he had been turned up when these English witnesses went to inspect the ships. They found this man who was Scottish, who worked for the Dutch, and he really rehabilitated himself. He told the English East India Company everything it had ever wanted to hear about what it had believed had happened. He wrote his own true relation. Um, he became this great witness for the English. So he went off to The Hague as well with these four witnesses. These men spent months at The Hague, maybe as many as 10 months, but they never were actually allowed to testify because the English ambassador refused to let them be interrogated about matters that they had not already deposed to, as indeed they all had deposed in July of 1624 after they returned to England. So these men spent years in limbo, um, st making themselves available, I think, as how do they put it, being, being in a readiness in London to serve the company if it needed them to do anything to add more details to their testimony, um, to be physical witnesses with their bodies of um, the veracity of their claims to be tortured. Then they went to The Hague and nothing. They got no restitution at all. They never lived long enough to see anything that they would think of as justice. Please elucidate the Dutch States General's decision eight years after the incident, which you already alluded to. Uh, the EIC's subsequent reprinting of the true relation, the compilation of the three texts, and uh, the revival of the woodcut with the red ink, as well as, of course, the 1654 Treaty of Westminster. And if you can, uh, 
if you can tie that to your cover, that'd be great. So the States General reached a decision in 1632. Their decision was that the judges who had served on the council at Amboina were guilty of a serious offense, but not guilty of the grave charges the English had wanted them to be punished for, especially the charge of insulting the king. So the men were supposed to be imprisoned, and the king was notified of this decision in 1632, and there were no, um, no orders for financial compensation with this decision. So the English were livid. They had the English East India Company had already started to reprint the true relation. They had been involved in reprinting the true relation you know, before. They had been stopped before, but they were ready to go. Um, in fact, they'd, they'd, in 1631, they tried, they were stopped, but then they were unfettered to reprint the true relation. And they also added another pamphlet, another three-part text that included the original trial transcript um, and two other items. But in their reprinting of the true relation, something interesting happened with the woodcut. So this was the version of the woodcut that was used in the Dutch language translation, the version that showed torture and not the execution scene. And I had decided that I wanted to look at as many of the surviving copies of this, of all of these pamphlets as I could, because you can look at all these pamphlets on um, electronically. There's digitized versions. There's you know, what used to be microfilm versions uh, through this database called Early English Books Online. So you can read all these pamphlets easily. But I wanted to visit them. I was interested in how, whether there was any marginalia, how had book buyers thought of these pamphlets in terms of how they might have bound the pamphlet with other books? How did they conceptualize this particular instance? Um, so anyhow, I just wanted to look at all these pamphlets. So I had seen this 1632 pamphlet before at the Huntington Library, but then I had the chance to spend a summer in Oxford. So I decided I'd look at one of the copies in the Bodleian. So the Bodleian copy had on the woodcut red ink on the man's hands, like stigmata, um, at the cut in his side, like blood under his feet where they were being burned. I just didn't know what to make of this. I didn't understand what the red ink was doing on the image and how it got there. I even had a librarian sit down next to me with a magnifying glass to look at this woodcut. And then the next day, I looked at another one of the Bodleian copies, because of course they have so much of everything. They have so many treasures. And that copy also had the red ink. And then I thought, okay, there's something important going on here about the red ink um, on this woodcut. It was They were printed this way. So I ended up writing librarians for every library that had a copy of this pamphlet. And librarians wrote me back. And it turned out about two-thirds of all the surviving copies showed this red ink. So the East India Company was obviously doing something very deliberate by putting this ink on the woodcut, I think to enhance the qualities of martyrdom, because it's hard to look at this woodcut with red ink on the hands and not think of Christ on the cross. Even though if you also look at the woodcut, you'll see that these men weren't nailed to a doorframe, they were tied, but nonetheless, there was all this blood. Um, and that um, reworking of the image was something that also turned out to be foundational to how I came to understand the incident. I mean, to pick up on your question about the cover of the book. Um, so the cover of the book shows 
nine figures, nine little illustrations. Um, each one shows a man being tortured. And these were figures made over the course of the 17th and 18th century. There's the one with the red ink. There's one that's hand-drawn from a manuscript at the British Library where somebody copied out the text, but then also copied the image in a, in a, in a watercolor. Um, and one of the important parts of the argument I make about the book is that this incident was invented as a massacre largely through this consistent use and reuse and reproduction um, and elaboration of the image. And that's a process that started as early as 1632 with this red ink on the woodcuts. That red ink did nothing to achieve the resolution that the East India Company wanted, of course. Um, It just antagonized the Dutch who complained about the pamphlet. Um, And then there was a stalemate on Amboina issues for another 20 years until the outbreak of the conflict called the First Anglo-Dutch War in 1652. And this was another great moment for Amboina. It emerged as not, of course, the cause, but at least a rationale for the war because it was such a useful way to speak critically about the Dutch as a cruel, ungrateful, and treacherous ally. During the war, there were new versions of the true relation, new pamphlets, new illustrations. The Dutch reprinted some of their own pamphlets. And then finally, the treaty that ended the war, the Treaty of Westminster in 1654, um, gave the East India Company and some of the families of the dead men compensation. So in this treaty, the English and Dutch continued to disagree about the episode, even on what to call it. So the Dutch said it should be described as something very anodyne and vague, like the disorders. And the English insisted on calling it a murder, um, which is how it was described in the final version of the treaty. Some of the families of the dead had been trying to get compensation for 30 years, and some of them got some restitution in this treaty. No one got as much as they wanted, but it seemed like there was finally a real reckoning for the injuries at Amboina. Or at least that's what I thought when I first started working on this project. I thought, 1654, it's all resolved. And then I realized there was never really a resolution in terms of the role that it came to play in popular and political culture. Please briefly trace the role of the memory of Amboina in print and performative cultures in England, including library catalogs, during the subsequent uh, Anglo-Dutch wars, uh, during and after the Treaty of Westminster until the 1670s, and the Glorious Revolution. You can highlight shifting notions of torture, Dutch ingratitude, cruelty, as well as the, so, the purported weaknesses of early Stuart monarchs. Again, one or all. Okay. <laughs> so I, I was interested in trying to understand the persistence of this story of Amboina beyond how it appeared in pamphlets that were specifically about Amboina or wartime pamphlets that were about the Dutch. Um, And luckily I was able to use some two databases in particular, early English books online and 18th century collections online, which are key um, databases for printed material uh, to search. And of course, I had a very distinctive word to search. Amboina, it's a very unusual word. So I could I searched an array of material just trying to figure out how Amboina appeared in print culture in ways beyond the conflict itself. 
So what I learned was that people seem to, well, they knew a fair bit about it. It popped up in all kinds of materials. And that what people were mostly responding to when they used Amboina or invoked Amboina was the torture, both the descriptions of the torture and the images. So there, I found evidence, for example, that people had seen the woodcuts um, in some pretty unlikely ways. Like there is this medical advice manual from 1633, and this doctor who wrote this manual thought he had an idea for how to cure the hydrophobia that affected people who had rabies, although he had never seen anybody with rabies in England, but he, he had read about it. And he thought he had an idea, and his idea was inspired by the picture of an Englishman being tortured with water. At Amboina, he thought you could perhaps use that treatment, torture somebody who had hydrophobia with water. Maybe they could overcome it. He was very explicit about having seen the woodcut. I looked at a drawing manual from the 1650s, and the author of that manual was wrestling with the question, which is more powerful, art or words? And he concluded that art was more powerful. And the reason he knew this was because he had seen a painting that the English East India Company had commissioned about Amboina in 1624 and 1625. They'd hired a portrait painter to paint the scene at Amboina. It was so inflammatory and upsetting that the Duke of Buckingham confiscated it and it's never been seen since. But the author of this drawing manual had seen it. And when he saw it, he also um, was there with a somebody who he described as a widow of one of the men killed at Amboina, and she fainted dead away. So he said this was evidence that art was more powerful than words. So it popped up in all these really unexpected ways. Um, and it seemed that people had a pretty detailed knowledge about what had happened. Uh, it appeared on stage. John Dryden, who was one of the main English poets and playwrights of the 17th century, wrote a play called Amboina during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. But that wasn't the first play. There was a play from 1625 that was suppressed by the government and was never allowed to be performed. There was a play in 1633. Um, it wasn't just about Amboina, um, but it mentioned it. And it was written by an English East India Company employee, not a professional playwright. Um, it's not, we don't even know for sure if it was ever performed, uh, but it was definitely censored specifically for the content about Amboina. And you can actually look at the original manuscript, the British Library, and see the marks indicating what material should be excised so it would not be um, offensive to the Dutch. But when Dryden wrote his play during the war, you know, he faced no limitations. So he was able to show all of his anti-Dutch sentiments freely and to show torture. So he even depicted torture on stage and he had one character come out covered with matches saying, basically, bring on more torture. All of this focus on torture and all these different aspects of print culture meant that the story became associated with cruelty. I talked before about the role of ingratitude, how the English believed the Dutch were ungrateful to them. And that was important in many ways um, as a political component of this critique of the Dutch. But the story as one of torture became a story of cruelty. And that's something that I really picked up through a set of sources I never even thought I would look at, library catalogs. So I, I had this notion that I'd kind of like to know how many people had books about Amboina. So I was doing some searching through library catalogs, and I realized that was sort of an, un, an unknowable 
question because it was I just I didn't have enough of a context to understand how to make sense of what I was finding. But then I noticed that all these books about Amboina weren't described with their titles. So these these catalogs li- listed um, books in private collections. They might be a bookseller's catalog or an auction catalog. So these long lists of books. And the books about Amboina in the 17th century, they were mostly described with their title. But by the middle of the 18th century, 80 to 90% of the books had been retitled and they were retitled to be something like The Cruelty of the Dutch at Amboina. So it was clear to me that whatever the title actually was of the book, the person making the catalog knew that the story of Amboina was a story of cruelty. And so that was one of the big shifts that transpired and reflects, I think, something about how English people made sense of the episode, at least through this kind of um, strange vantage point of how it appeared in these library catalogs. How and why did the memory of the Amboina massacre enter into 18th century Tory political culture? And how did personal libraries, as well as the assumption of readers' general knowledge of the incident and works by Defoe, Swift, and uh, Johnson, contribute to the diffusion of its memory around the world, especially in books owned by Thomas Jefferson? You can also address the Towers and Letters, Cries of British Blood, uh, Cedra, in the latter part of the century as well, if you wish. Yeah, there's just there's just so many explosions of Amboina text to talk about. It's, it's too much. Um <laughs> So one of the interesting things about the Amboina story, to me, was that English writers and politicians didn't use it just to complain about the Dutch, although, of course, it was very handy that way. And in every one of these wars, out it came to indict the Dutch. But it also became a part of British political culture and part of British partisan politics. So the Tories used the story to criticize the Whigs, who tended to be more sympathetic to the Dutch and to the values that they attached or associated with the Dutch. It began in 1688 with the Glorious Revolution. There was another version of the True Relation printed in that year by a Tory, which very explicitly warned the English of what would happen if the Dutch were in charge. It would just be Amboina all the time in England. So that was an episode when Amboina, this Amboina pamphlet was used purely for internal British affairs. And the same thing happened during the War of the of the Spanish succession, which was a conflict, a big European conflict in the beginning of the 18th century, in which the English and Dutch were actually allies. So at first I was particularly perplexed as to why there were these Amboina pamphlets when the English and Dutch were allies. But then I realized what was happening was that the Tories wanted to end the war and sever the alliance while the Whigs were committed to the Dutch and to the alliance. So the Tories reprinted and reworked the Amboina pamphlets of course, with the illustrations, to make a point about the unreliability of the Dutch. And they emphasized a different part of the Amboina story, which was treaties. So there had been that 1619 treaty, which the English complained in their pamphlets in the 1620s, the Dutch had violated. Well, a century later, almost 90 years later, during this conflict, the Tories emphasized that aspect of the treaties and they to, to say that, or to make the argument that the Dutch couldn't be trusted in treaties, and the English had to sever the alliance. So they emphasize a different part of the story, but still to make that same larger point, although used here against the British, against the Whigs. 
So as I read more 18th century materials, it became clear to me that Amboina continued to be a familiar reference. Writers used it in ways that suggested that readers understood just what the word meant. So the most obvious example of that is in uh, Jonathan Swift's famous novel, Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver traveled from Japan back to Europe on a ship called the Amboina. And Swift didn't explain in the text what that meant. But what a reader was supposed to understand by the use of that word Amboina was that Gulliver was in a perilous situation. Um, And in fact, Gulliver was traveling in disguise on the ship. He was afraid to reveal who he was. And the use of the word Amboina was supposed to conjure up all of those sentiments um, for the reader with no other comment at all. And the word did similar kind of work in a couple of novels by Defoe and in a big bestseller of the 18th century, a novel called Chrysal by uh, Charles Johnston. So readers were supposed to kind of just get these references. So then I tried to figure out how an educated person might learn about Amboina. Um, So I tried to look at the contents of libraries of people in different parts of the world claimed by the English. So you would ask me about Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had a, has a very well, or had a very well-documented library. Scholars know what he owned. Um, and then I also looked at the library contents of a plantation owner, an overseer in Jamaica. And I looked at uh, a colleague shared a database of, of um, books he had from estate inventories for Calcutta. So I was trying to get a sense of how people far flung in the British empire might have encountered this story. And what I learned was that in all these cases, all these libraries had Amboina content. So for example, Jefferson had Dryden's play. He owned histories, you know, um, Hume and Macaulay, for example. I mean, any any, any of these 18th century historians, any historian wrote about Amboina. It was a big story um, in domestic English history in this period. Um, The overseer in Jamaica even had two different illustrations showing the Amboina tortures. That familiarity spanned the 18th century, and it meant that during any conflict with the Dutch, or even in conflicts when the Dutch were neutral, like in the Seven Years' War, the story could come out again. It was just ready to be redeployed. So the very final true relation was in 1781. So, you know, 170 years after the first one, in what's called the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, um, and this title, you know, the, the titles kept changing. They were, not, they were not called True Relations after the 1650s. This one was called The Cries of British Blood. And the larger argument was that the cries of our ancestors are calling out, or the blood of our ancestors is, are, is calling out for vengeance. The argument was that the Dutch had never adequately compensated the English, despite the restitution of the Treaty of Westminster. So it, it turned the story of Amboina into one of an unrevenged injury or as I suggest at greater length in the book, maybe even into something like a legend in which the blood of the ancestors was unavenged. So there was just this um, this persistence and a persistence that spoke of a familiarity to the extent that a writer could just say the name and everyone knew that what that was supposed to mean. At what point did massacre become a synonym for slaughter? And how is this reflected in revised editions of the Amboina Massacre narratives, beginning with the late 18th century Encyclopedia Britannica entries? In addition, how did events, including the Rebellion of 1857, 
entwined the memory of Amboina with British imperial endeavors in India. One of the weird things about the Amboina massacre is that the meaning of the word massacre changed. So I argue in the book that English ideas about what a massacre entailed derived largely from what happened at Amboina. But massacre also changed its meaning to become a more constant synonym for slaughter, which is how we use it today. That started to happen by the middle of the 18th century. Um, And although in the 17th century, massacre could still mean a judicial execution. So for example, royalists called the execution of Charles I in 1649 a massacre, and in the same way, Charles I was a martyr. But by the late 17th century and beyond, a massacre was more generally a slaughter. So what happened was that when authors wrote about the Amboina massacre, they brought to it that meaning of slaughter. They wrote about, they used massacre as a verb when the Dutch massacred the English at Amboina, and all sorts of confusion started to creep in. So I traced the story through the Encyclopedia Britannica, which first started in the late 18th century and, of course, still going strong today. And the event there became a story in which a British settlement on Amboina was wiped out by the Dutch. So, of course, the Japanese completely vanished. The merchants were gone. Um, The shared houses between the English and the Dutch were gone. And the story became one of an unprovoked attack by the Dutch. And I think a lot of that new version of the story was produced by this changed meaning of the word massacre to be a, a slaughter and not this kind of legal process with a judicial execution at the end. The connection with India and the way that the Amboina story got linked to a story of the British Empire was something that I think became most fully formed in the 19th century, but there were inklings earlier. So in 1759, the English East India Company had expelled the Dutch from a city in India, and the well-known administrator and soldier Robert Clive wrote an account of this, and he compared the incident to Amboina. And he said if the English had not succeeded in driving out the Dutch, then there would have been another Amboina episode there. So that, of course, prompted more reprintings in England, inspired by Clive's letter of the true relation in 1760. Um, But I think it was really in the 19th century that that connection became stronger, largely because of the growing importance of India to Britain. And then after the 1857 uprising in India, one historian linked Amboina to the Black Hole of Calcutta, which is another tale of alleged perfidy against the English, and then to the 1857 uprising, all three serving as examples of great injustices inflicted on the English, all part of a story of the risks that the British faced overseas. And later historians made that connection between Amboina and India and Amboina and empire even more explicitly. So by the early 20th century, historians argued that the English were in India specifically because of Amboina. The English, they argued, had been driven out of the Spice Islands by the Dutch and so ended up focusing on India. One prominent historian even said in the 1930s that the Amboina massacre changed the course of history by turning British attention to India. So the story um, made this transition not only in, as, a, as a massacre and what that meant, you know, it became, became a slaughter, but also in terms of its relationship to British history and to the history of the British Empire. It was a story that, of course, took place 
in the context of British expansion, it was a global story, but then it became this European affair in which non-Europeans were removed and the non-Europeans still weren't a part of the story in these later iterations, but it had at least been restored to a, a locale overseas, at least had been restored to the Indian Ocean, although oddly yoked to a history of the British in India. On that note, how and why did the rise of imperial history as an academic subject, as well as conflicts such as the late 19th century Anglo-Boer Wars, shift the Amboina narrative to advance British martyrdom and imperial expansion? And this is kind of a follow-up question, but I'll pose it now. Why did historical narratives and children's educational materials omit Japanese soldiers? There was this set of convergences in the late 19th and early 20th century that gave Amboina a more important place in works of British history and in history books for children. And so I was trying to figure out how, how to get to the end of the Amboina story because I couldn't, it didn't ever seem to end. Um, I mean, as something that was regarded as an atrocity and as a massacre. And so I decided that I would try to get at it by thinking about children's education and history books for children. So that's kind of what drew me into this part of the story. Um, in the 19th century, there was this big publication project to bring the, the to print the calendar of state papers, and that meant that people had access to these materials in a way they never did before. The libraries owned the calendars, this compilation of documents, and so the the um, all these Amboina documents were extensively um, reproduced there. So there was familiarity with the story. The Boer War, the African Wars in the late 19th and early 20th century, put new attention on English and Dutch history, including, you know, that 17th century history with Amboina, of course, a helpful tale of grievance that seemed, again, to signal um, the unreliability and treachery of the Dutch. The war itself sparked concerns that British youth were insufficiently patriotic and attached to empire, and that led to a big surge in activities focused on imperial identity and in the promotion of British and imperial history in education. And important to that endeavor was the rise of history as a profession in the 19th century and the emergence of imperial history as a field. So all of those things came together and made a place for Amboina. Not, didn't show up in every history work. It wasn't everywhere, but it was consistently mentioned as an event still called a massacre and an atrocity, and most crucially, an event that explained why the British Empire looked the way it did. It explained in these works why the British were in India. They had been driven out of the Spice Islands by the jealous Dutch who, unprovoked, attacked the English and, depending on the version you looked at, destroyed, destroyed a British garrison or destroyed a British settlement and expelled the settlers. I mean, all the different ways in which um, what a massacre was had been tangled up with a slaughter. And there was just no place for the Japanese in this version of the story in the same way that they really weren't thought to be that important in the 1620s. This was a story of European rivalry. So I think it gives us a little insight into how the Europe, how the British made sense of their world and their empire. Um, in some of the 19th century histories, the Japanese were still in the story. Um, but by the 20th century, you know, occasionally they appeared, but, but the, narr- the story of a massacre as a slaughter didn't need a Japanese soldier to ask a question to produce a trial. It just wasn't as important. And this, this new version of the story um, created a foundation for the British Empire that was built on this idea of English victims 
and innocence and of martyrdom, with that word massacre continuing to play a role. So as late as 1972, there is a history textbook that calls this incident an atrocity. So it's a really persistent view that was entrenched almost throughout the 20th century. If you can, please compare and contrast the Amboina Massacre with incidents such as the 1770 Boston Massacre that similarly became embroiled in memory-making. Where will did images, a consistent story, as well as nomenclature and etymology of massacre play in forging this memory? One of the things that interested me as I thought about the Amboina incident as a massacre, which of course was a word imposed upon it by the English who created the event, was how it compared with other such episodes, both ones that historians might call massacres and those that people at the time called massacres. So in many ways, to me, it seemed quite different. Other events that we call massacres have special locales that can become pilgrimage sites. Victorian Britons in the 19th century tried to find the specific spot, for example, for the Black Hole of Calcutta. Um, And finding and marking locations of massacres um, is an important commemorative endeavor, but there's nothing like that for Amboina. Other massacres have things like annual commemorations, like annual days of prayer, which took place, for example, for the incident that took place in Ireland in 1641, which the English called a massacre. There are prayers for that to the 19th century. Um, Other massacres have more sympathetic victims. I mean, in the 17th century, these English traders were regarded as martyrs, but they, they really didn't, you know, get a lot of interest in later years. So they weren't, it wasn't like, they didn't seem to be victims, but really um, perpetrators of colonialism is how we've come to think about these, these kinds of people. And there also weren't a lot of victims. So when I looked in these 18th century histories and chronologies and almanacs, which would list massacres, often there'd be a list of the numbers of victims, but not for Amboina. It, it just didn't seem to be very important. But what the story did have was a really conservative story. And I say that even though I've just argued that the meaning of massacre changed, and that's true. Um, what, the, what the violence entailed got tangled up. But even when historians were writing about this incident as the slaughter of a settlement, they still reproduced that same image, that same woodcut or engraving or whatever version it was um, showing a tortured traitor. And it always looked almost exactly the same with just embellishments, but the core features there of a of a European man at the center being tortured by other European men. So even when British authors were confused about what the massacre entailed, even when they'd lost track of the Japanese, they'd lost track of the conspiracy trial, they still wrote of Dutch treachery and betrayal and cruelty and intimacy, which I think is different from at least some other things that we call massacres, like the episode known as the Boston Massacre, that was, of course, part of that the um, foreground of the American Revolution. The, at the time of the Boston Massacre, Paul Revere produced uh, an engraving that has become an iconic depiction of the event, and it shows British soldiers fi- firing on um, static and uh, defeated um, colonists. But in the 19th century, especially as abolitionists and African-Americans became interested in thinking about the participation of African-Americans in that episode, there was a painting made that showed 
much more aggression on the part of the colonists and really recast that whole account of the Boston Massacre. So there's there's nothing like that in the case of Amboina. The illustrations are not identical, but repetitive and immediately recognizable. So Amboina is static. And I argue that that static nature enabled it to become the first English massacre. I talked earlier about that incident in Virginia that took place in 1622. The English called that a massacre. But then when I was looking at history books and almanacs and all kinds of um, chronologies and sources for the 18th century, that Virginia story was gone. And in lists of English massacres, Amboina was the first one. Amboina had come to define those features of cruelty and intimacy and betrayal. Those were the defining features. And I think that's why we still associate a massacre with something that's not just a cruel death, but also a betrayal. Massacres, as we think about them today, take place between people who share a connection, not usually strangers. So we think of horrible things like a child going to school and killing his classmates and his teachers, or neighbors who put bombs on the path of a marathon. These are people who are familiar. They commit these acts because they know us. And I think we carry all of those associations with us still in that word massacre. And I suggest in my book that it goes back to how Amboina was created as a massacre. So what's going on with you next? Do you have any projects um, that you can disclose to us today? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of things. I mean, all, of course, amid the constraints of what kinds of work um, one can do in an era when you can't travel and you just can't, you know, get to libraries. Um, But one of the things I've been working on builds on my interest in historical memories and the commemoration of historical events. Um, You know, I'm a 17th century historian. That's the century I usually specialize in. This project, of course, took me, you know, practically to the present day. But I've been interested in the past year over how two 17th century events in U.S. history have been commemorated. One, of course, is 1619, which marked the arrival of captive, captive Africans in Virginia. And then 1620, which was the year the Mayflower arrived in New England. Both events have been commemorated with local, um, and in the case of the Mayflower, international activities, although, of course, the Mayflower activities have been suspended and delayed and canceled because of of COVID. Um, So I've been working on something that looks at these national commemorations in an Atlantic and global context. And that's also uh, gotten me into thinking about the recent commemorations in New Zealand and Australia of Captain Cook's voyages. So I've been thinking about some of the different ways that nations and private groups have decided to acknowledge these historical events. So it's been it's been a really interesting project. And I also have started to think that if anyone wants to put on a big commemoration in three years for Amboina's 400th anniversary, I'll be ready to go. <laughs> well, thank you for being on the show today, Professor Games. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. So the book is Inventing the English Massacre and Boyna in History and Memory by Professor Allison Games out earlier this year by Oxford University Press. On behalf of behalf of Professor Games, this has been a production of New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. Please tune in next time.